Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in Acts chapter 8 and as we get started this morning, I was thinking about originals. I like originals. I like movies. Um, And when I watch movies that have usually more than one, there's a sequel or there's a trilogy or there's four or five or six, I think usually the original is the best version of that movie. For example, Toy Story. How many Toy Story movies are there? There are there four? I, I don't know if I remember any of them besides the first one. Uh, I think there's like 37 Rocky movies. Um, I really like the first one. It's pretty awesome. I was thinking about the Star Wars movies, and there's nine of them. And it's, there's something really awesome about the first one. When the first time you meet Han Solo, the first time you see Jabba the Hutt. Uh, the graphics are uh, so indicative of the time they're made in cinematic history, and it's just really great. But as the story evolves and expands, we soon find appreciation for the sequels, right? For instance, you know who debuts in Star Wars 5 that we don't even know about in Star Wars 4? Yoda. Like, can you imagine the Star Wars universe without Yoda? (laughs) Think you cannot, my opinion is. Took you a second, didn't it? But as the narrative develops, we see plot lines develop. And what ends up happening as stories develop, there's new characters that are introduced. And the plot line kind of gets developed on a greater scale than we're used to. I want you to think about that as we launch out into Acts 8. Because we are officially entering phase 2 of the book of Acts. Phase 1 started, uh, stars the church starting. It starts on the heels of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see the ascension of Jesus. We hear Jesus telling the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit because nothing can start until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And as they're together, as they're praying, as they are together, the Holy Spirit's come on them. And it's like this first domino for the first six or seven chapters all of a sudden things start happening. They start speaking in tongues, in languages they've never learned before. People are hearing the gospel for the very first time in their native language. Uh, Peter gets up and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I think one of the reasons Jesus said you have to wait till the Holy Spirit is we know Peter's history in the gospels. Could you imagine if Peter got up on the day of Pentecost without the Holy Spirit and just started talking? Right? During the Gospels, we see many instances where he kind of just puts his foot in his mouth. And so Jesus is like, above all, Peter, please wait till the Holy Spirit comes. We get to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes, and he preaches, and then he preaches this amazing message of repentance and identifying with Christ and being baptized, and thousands of people are saved. Believers are uh, coming to the church every single day. We see them battle some external difficulties, some internal obstacles. They're starting to organize themselves a little bit. There's healing, there's signs, there's wonders. And now we're officially in phase two. And similar to any kind of 
uh, uh, franchise of movies or things like that, what ends up happening for the next few chapters is this. The plot line of the Holy Spirit moving amongst the church and the church being truly spirit-empowered starts to develop. And then we also see the addition of other characters that we didn't know before. So in the first few chapters, we're identifying primarily with Peter, John, and the Holy Spirit. That's what uh, we're centered around as far as the main stories. And now we're beginning to see the expansion of the storylines with additional characters. And so today, we're, uh, we're at uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. The scattering begins. Look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. In fact, let's read this verse together. Ready, begin. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is the beginning of the scattering. Now, last week we talked about there's two different words for scattering that the Greek language would use. And one is used for like when you scatter ashes and they disappear in the water or they disappear into the ground. The other way to use this word scatter is when you have seeds and you throw them against a field and instead of disappearing, they take root. And after time and water and weather and and fertilization, what ends up happening with those seeds, they bring forth fruit. So when they say they're scattered, it doesn't mean they went out and disappeared and you never hear from them again. What ends up happening to the church is like seeds that are spread onto a field. They're scattered, and in time we start seeing all this fruit come up. Now historically, what we have seen in the church is this. There will be moments where there's persecution against the church. Uh, Yes or no? Have we seen persecution so far by the time we get to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4? Yeah, we've seen persecution, right? Uh, Peter heals the lame man in Acts chapter 4, I believe, and right away he's thrown into jail. They put him in the jail for the night, and they're like, we don't know what to do with you. We'll figure it out tomorrow in the morning. They give him the instructions. You're not to do this anymore. And he says, well... In the choice of obeying you and obeying God, I'm going to choose to obey God. Later on, there's more persecution, and it gets more and more severe. And last week, we saw the martyrdom of Stephen, where all of their threats, all of their anger, all of their vitriol come to a head. And the Bible says that when Stephen began to preach with them, and they realized what he was saying about their role in the death of Jesus Christ, they gnashed at him with their teeth. They took his clothes off, they pushed him off a cliff, they stoned him to death. Now historically, two things happen when the church is persecuted. Number one, there is this scattering, but then there also is the expansion of the kingdom. It's an amazing thing. We're going to see this over and over in the book of Acts. When there's persecution, the people of God will scatter, and then the kingdom grows every single time. So as we get started this morning, we're going to see Philip bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. Philip is a new character. Uh, We read in verse 5 this way. It says this, Philip went down to the city of, help me out with the city name, Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Like Stephen, he was one of the men chosen to serve the church in very practical ways in Acts chapter 6. He was one of those uh, first deacons, it looks like. And he was one of the first uh, that fled this persecution and scattered 
And the place he chose to go was Samaria. So a little background here. There was deep-seated prejudice, all amount, amounting almost to hatred, standing between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the history of this is this. At the time of this writing, if we go back 700 years or so, the Assyrians conquered this area of northern Israel, and they deported all the wealthy and middle-class Jews from the area. They kicked them out of their homeland. They got rid of them. And instead, they brought in uh, a pagan population. And these intermarried with the lowest classes of remaining Jews in the northern Israel. And from this uh, event in history comes this new people group, the Samaritans. So think about it if you're a Jewish person. A Samaritan represented the time where... Uh, your people, your ancestors were kicked out of their homeland, right? Uh, pagans were brought in that did not believe in God. They married uh, the remaining remnant of Jewish people, and uh, the people that came after them formed this new group of Samaritans. So when you saw a Samaritan, they represented uh, your ancestors being kicked out of their homeland. When you saw a Samaritan, it represented a half-breed, as it were, and so generally speaking, the Jews of that day hated the Samaritans. Jews considered the Samaritans compromisers, half-breeds who corrupted the worship of their true God. Uh, if you look at the Gospels, James and John said some pretty gnarly things about the Samaritans. They said that uh, they were only good for being burned by God's judgment. That's hatred. That is a severe prejudice but what we see happening now is the gospel is now being extended outside of the Jewish community, beginning with these same Samaritans. It's interesting because after the Jews had rejected the gospel, God is now extending this same gospel to the people that were considered the ultimate outsiders the ones that were hated, the ones that were ridiculed, the ones that were, uh, had no business being God's people in the Jewish people's minds. This is the very first people that are now introduced. Um, so let's, let's work back just for a moment. Acts chapter 1, when Jesus gives instructions to his disciples, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, right? But after the Holy Spirit comes... Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says this, then you will receive power. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses where you are waiting in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then where? Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see how Acts 1.8 is this blueprint for the rest of the book of Acts. And now in Acts chapter 8, we see the second phase of the gospel going to Samaria. I think it's interesting that he chose Samaria, by the way, here. Uh, do you remember Jesus' interactions with Samaria and Samaritans in the gospel? Uh, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, uh, she's the very first person that hears from Jesus, I'm the Messiah. She's also the very first permission, uh, very first person to get permission from Jesus to go tell her people that he's the Messiah. You remember all through the Gospels, Jesus is like, I'm going to heal you, please don't tell anyone. Right? You're lame, now you can walk, please don't tell anyone yet. 
And it's kind of humorous. We're like, why is God, why is God um, sheltering this news? Well, part of the reason he wanted to prepare the way, but also I believe this John chapter 4 moment was crucial that he wanted to give this woman the opportunity to hear from himself, boy, uh, this, is, this was your land, um, we, are, we are at Jacob's well together, you're an outsider, you come in the middle of the day because you don't want to be ostracized by the other women in the town, um, you, say, uh, you say that uh, you've been worshiping God just as long as the others, and yet I want you to know in this moment, the Messiah has come. You don't have to come in the middle of the day anymore, representing the fact that she had to make extra effort to come to God. In fact, we're all equal before God now. It's amazing. Uh, We continue reading in verse 6. This is what happens. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. That ought to be your Sunday morning theme verse, by the way. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. That's a good way to come to church, right? By Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8, so there was so much joy in that city. So Philip came presenting the gospel with signs and wonders following an impressive confirmation. Uh, When the people found Jesus, there was great joy. Um... And I think the seeds that Jesus left along the way in his ministry during the Gospels, Philip is now seeing the harvest. This woman who uh, Jesus met in John chapter 4 no doubt never stopped talking about the man who told me everything about me. No doubt the stories that Jesus told about the good Samaritan uh, planted seeds in people's heart. And when it comes down to uh, Acts chapter 8, we see Philip being able to reap the harvest There was great joy. We move into this portion of Acts 8 where we're introduced to another character, another person in the narrative, and that is this, Simon the Sorcerer. We see this instance where Simon the Sorcerer believes. We'll pick up the story in verse 9. It says this, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Let's just define our words for just a moment. Uh, When it says practice magic, we're not talking about card tricks. We're not talking about magic in the way that you and I might be entertained by a magic trick. We're talking about something uh, far more than that. So we'll explain that in a minute. Let's look at verse 10. It says this, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So Simon's famous at this point. He has a fair degree of local fame. Verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So if you're taking notes, the Samaritans wrongly assumed that because Simon had spiritual power that it was from God. It simply wasn't the case. So the magic that we're talking about in Acts 8 is sorcery. Uh, anything associated with the occult, uh, it's often uh, associated with, even in scripture, of taking mind and mood-altering drugs. Uh, the specific wording indicates that Simon was a magi. And in the ancient world, there was a class of astronomers and scientists known as magi. 
But local wizards and sorcerers also took this title. So he's a local wizard. He's a local sorcerer, um, probably uh, practicing the occult, other practices like this. And the reason they used this was to prey on the ignorance and superstitions of people who are not educated. Verse 12, this is what ends up happening to the people. When they believed Philip, uh, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Again, this is common. This is what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. As people receive the word of God, they are now baptized, and Scripture starts mentioning both men and women in the book of Acts. Those who had been previously astonished by Simon and his sorcerers now believed Philip. Uh, And those who believed proclaimed their faith when they were baptized. Now here's the thing. There's no hint uh, that Philip... um, baptized anyone who wasn't really a believer. It's important to note as we keep going. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles that Philip performed, Simon, he was amazed. So at this point in Scripture... We believe that Simon made a true declaration of faith. Philip saw a genuine conversion and baptized him. And because Simon saw all these signs and wonders, he was amazed. Now, our faith will be tested by our conduct and our response over the course of time. And that's kind of the lesson we see here in Acts chapter 8. That over the course of time, our faith will be revealed. Um... We like to say in our church that um, our beliefs determine our behavior, and we will behave what we, what we truly believe. Uh, the evidence of our belief is found in our behavior, right? You can look at uh, my office wastebasket, and you can, uh, you can tell the evidence of my diet. You don't have to laugh. That wasn't a comical statement. I'm just saying that what is in my wastebasket in the office is a reflection of how I treat my body, right? The evidence is right there. If, if all you see is fast food wrappers uh, and, and I tell you that I'm taking my health seriously, there's a disconnect, right? So here, for us, what we believe should determine our behavior. And the evidence of what we believe is not what we put on Facebook. The evidence of what we believe is not how patriotic we are. The evidence of what we believe is going to be found out in how we behave. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for you, and you cuss out the first person that cuts you off in traffic, there's a disconnect here, right? Right? If you, if you believe that you have been forgiven on the cross by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and you can't forgive someone, there's a disconnect, right? I'm not saying it happens instantly. I'm not saying it, uh, that it doesn't take time. But the evidence of what we believe is found in our behavior. Simon here at this point was convinced by Philip's preaching and his miracles to the point where he declared his belief. He was baptized and he continued with Philip. Now, at this point, there's nothing to indicate that Simon's belief was false or insincere. While this is happening, 
while Simon is believing, while he's getting baptized, there's also a second story that's occurring. So it's kind of like, meanwhile, we come to verse 14, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. So verse 14 says this, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, we don't know how much time this took. Um, There had to be messengers involved, right? We're talking first century Jerusalem. They heard this, and now they're sending Peter and John. Verse 15, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16 and said, upon this rock I will build my church, this is what he's talking about. This purpose of allowing people to see the kingdom of God even though they're outsiders. Now verse 16 has an interesting phrase we're going to unpack for just a moment. It says this, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Who is the he in verse 16? The Holy Spirit. So this is kind of a confusing verse, I'll just be honest with you. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the fact that Christians received the Holy Spirit in what seems to be two subsequent appearances is really confusing. So there's a couple different theories of what has happened here. I want to share those two or three theories, and then I'm going to share what I believe happened. And I want to be very clear, it's what I believe and what I've interpreted from Scripture and study. There's some that would say, well, if they got saved and baptized here, and then they received the Holy Spirit here, that they were never really saved in the first place. When Peter and John came, they really trusted in Jesus then, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Um... Some say that they were truly born again, and then in a subsequent experience, they then received the Holy Spirit in a pattern that some people believe today. Um, There are some brothers and sisters in Christ, um, some some parts of our faith. um, I think I can call them charismatics, maybe the Pentecostal uh, faith, where they will believe that you can get saved, baptized, and then later the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Um, the Catholic faith has something very similar um, where you get baptized as an infant, right? And then later you go through catechism and you do your first confirmation, right? And then you take communion for the first time. There's two events there. Um, so that's a theory as well. Some say that they were converted in response to Philip's preaching, yet God, in a very unique move for this time only, withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John could bestow it upon them as they were apostles commissioned to do so. Um, I'm going to phrase what I think is happening here. I believe they were sealed by the Holy Spirit at their conversion, and then they were given unique gifts and graces from the Holy Spirit, at the, time, at the time of their filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if this is confusing, that's okay. Uh, the Bible tells us that um, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? Scripture reminds us of this. Uh, a few weeks ago on June 5th, for those of you who would like to listen to it, we did a whole message on the Holy Spirit. 
and we talked about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and then we talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit. I think what has happened here in Acts chapter 8 is they were sealed by the Holy Spirit with their conversion, uh, they were baptized, and then later they were filled with the Holy Spirit and end up receiving gifts and graces. They were really born again and did really receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion, but I believe they were given special gifts and graces on the, by the laying of the hands by Peter and John later, this filling and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Now, whatever the Samaritans experienced, it seems to have been more than the regular um, um, experience of the Holy Spirit at salvation. It seems to be more, it seems to be on top of, and I believe this is the additional filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, you've are, we've already seen this happen in the book of Acts where uh, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and you could say then at that moment in Acts chapter 2 that they have the Holy Spirit, right? Well, just a chapter later, they're praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's two different events there. Regardless of those, if you have questions about that, I completely understand. Feel free to email me, text me. We'll set up a time and we'll discuss it if it's something that, um, that you're wrestling with. Uh, there are times in Scripture, especially in our church, when we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, one of the advantages of that is we don't miss anything. One of the hard things of that is we don't miss anything, <laughs> right? And we have to tackle Scriptures that maybe we can't make sense of in the moment, but we do the best we can. And then I think the other thing is, as we go through the book of Acts, you will see this reality confirmed over and over again where people are filled or, or people are sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of their conversion and then later on in their walk of life there's a special filling of the Holy Spirit and again if you're watching this online or listening to this later in the week and you have questions about this feel free to reach out we'd love to just sit down and unpack as much as we can we're going to move on in the story in verse 18 where Simon's heart is relieved, uh, revealed when Simon saw, look what he's looking at. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them what? Now look what he says, saying, what are the first two words that he says? Give me this power also. So that, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting phrasing because what he's asking for is a pretty noble request. I want people to receive the Holy Spirit, but I think his heart is revealed by the way he positions it by give me. And he offered them money. Simon noticed that when Peter and John laid the hand, something different happened. There was a filling, uh, and these people had gifts and graces that they didn't have before. And he was impressed by that, especially by the way he had lived his life previously, impressing people with his gifts. And he wanted to offer money in order to have this gift as well. If you're taking notes, he regarded the Holy Spirit as a power he could use as he wanted instead of a person who ruled his life. He regarded the Holy Spirit as a power rather than a person. Something that he could use rather than something that he would have to yield to. Now, there's two ways to live with the Holy Spirit in your life. You can approach the Holy Spirit as something that 
that you desire, something that you get to use, a vending machine, a spiritual vending machine of sorts where if on the given day you're looking for a certain power and you press a button and the Holy Spirit just gives it to you, or you go through life with the Holy Spirit being an authority in your life where you yield yourself to it. Simon thought that the Holy Spirit was merely a power. He wanted to control the working of the Holy Spirit rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to control him. His sin was a desire to possess spiritual power for personal ends. And of course, Simon was wrong with this. Holy Spirit gave Peter some wisdom, verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So here's the thing. The gift of God are received freely from him by faith. Isaiah says it this way. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money. Come buy and eat. Buy buy wine and milk without money, without price. What we receive from God will affect what we do with our money. But we can't purchase the gifts of God with money or with influence, or with power. Verse 21, he goes on, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter's rebuke to Simon wasn't exactly uh, an answer, uh, doesn't exactly answer an important question. Was Simon really saved, or was he not? Here's the thing, um, I don't think it's for us to judge whether he was saved or not. The evidence, we talked about evidence before, the fruit of Simon's life was, he looked like he was saved. He expressed belief in the preaching. He received Simon. Uh, Peter received Simon, I should say. Philip did. And then Simon attended meetings. He was baptized. All of those things point to the fact that he was a follower. But Philip could not actually see into Simon's heart and know with complete certainty that he was sincere in his faith. Look at that verse again. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. When Peter says you have no part or share, it's interesting that he employs the same words that Jesus used when Peter had objected in Jesus' washing of his feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Strong words. Peter wasn't an unbeliever. He was just out of the will of God in that moment. He goes on in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the the bond of iniquity. In other words, he was chained to this iniquity. Peter says the way you get released from this is you repent, you turn around, you change direction. I, um, I was listening to a message by one of my close friends, Sean. Sean Bitzer is the pastor in Monmouth, Oregon. Anybody know what Monmouth is? Monmouth, Oregon, Monmouth Christian Church. Sean's a good friend of mine, and he was preaching last Sunday, and um, I was listening to some of his message um, And Sean pointed out, and he asked this question that was so uh, convicting in my own heart. He said, when was the last time that between your own desire and what Jesus asked you to do, you chose what Jesus asked you to do because your desire was different? 
Like it's really easy when your desire matches up with Jesus, right? And those decisions are easy. Those decisions come easy. And there's a little tension in your heart. There's no um, weariness. There's no denying of self. Uh, these are things you want to do. You've come to church for years. You've, uh, you've participated for years. And so in, in, in identifying whether or not this is your desire or Jesus' direction for your life, it's really simple because they both happen to be the same thing. He was telling a story about one day he was coming home from work and there was a car that was following him. And like every time he took a left turn, the car took a left turn. So Sean started getting a little paranoid. How many of you would get paranoid? How many of you would be like, I'm going to go all around town and see how long he follows me? So he began driving home and the car's right behind him. Thought he lost him for a minute and the car's right there. So he takes a right turn. So then he starts taking a different way home. And the car's still right behind him. He pulls up onto his street, and the car's still on him. And I've been to Sean's home. He lives at, the, um, at a dead end. It's, it's like literally just his house on the right, and the car's still behind him. And when he goes and parks into his driveway, the car parks into their driveway on the opposite side. Was the car following him? They just happened to be going the same direction. You know, some of us are, are, are following God, and it's easy because you just happen to be going in the same direction. And yet there will come a moment in your life where God will ask you to choose between your desire and the way he wants you to go. And in that moment, your allegiance, your, your, uh, your belief will be put to the test where you have to choose. Do I, do I go with what I want or... Do I follow him? Peter is asking Simon, man, this is what you want. This is not the way to follow Christ. And so in this moment, he had to choose. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. In other words, you think you're following God because for so long uh, you're following the same direction as God. But in reality, the destinations are just right next to each other. And there will come a point in your life where God asks you to go right and, and you want to go left and you will have to choose. And some of us are often are, we're, we're put in the place where we often say, I'm going to go my way on this one, God. And, and, and when we align again, I will be completely following you. And we'll lie to ourselves in this way, convincing ourselves that we're following God this whole time. This accurately describes Simon's heart. And Peter says, repent. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You think you're following God, but in this way, you are in the middle of your bitterness and you are bound by your iniquity. Simon's response is so sad. Look at verse 24. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's a simple enough request, but instead of actually humbling his heart before God, Simon asked Peter to pray he would be spared the consequence of his sin. 
I believe Simon felt a true conviction of the Holy Spirit, but for some reason was not yet willing to humble his own heart before God. Now here's the thing, we don't see Simon appear in Scripture again. But according to historical records of that time, and church tradition of the time with Josephus and others who recorded uh, history in first century Jerusalem, history says that Simon went off the deep became a dangerous false teacher among the early Christians, persecuting them, killing them. Now, it's possible that he did repent at some point in his life and get his heart right with God, but Peter could not humble Simon's heart for him. Church, the door of repentance and getting your heart right with God is open to you if you take it but someone else cannot do that for you. The preacher can't believe for you, nor can he repent for you. Trust me, he has enough repenting to do on his own. I know him. Uh, The pastor can pray for you. The elders can pray for you. Your friend can pray for you. Your parents can pray for you. But you need to be willing To humble yourself, as Peter told Simon to do. To repent, to turn back in order to come to Christ. We read the last story of this narrative and it says this, When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's a fascinating story with Simon because uh, Simon's story is included in this narrative not by happenstance, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what can we glean from the story of Simon as we think through our own life? Well, what we see here first is uh, there is an intent to make sure the gospel goes to people outside the church. And guess who's called to do that? We are called to do that. We are called to be the witnesses to Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and then into Samaria. And so while we gather here on Sundays, guess what needs to be the activity of our heart between Sundays? Reaching people with the kingdom. Sharing the kingdom. This is your and I's responsibility. Um, And when we have the opportunity where the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ expands to outsiders, this is the very fulfillment of the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, it's the story of not just the Jews having access to God anymore, not just the Jews having access to the Torah anymore, not just the Jews having access to the law anymore, but all of a sudden, all that is busted wide open, and we're saying everyone that hears can come, everyone who believes can come, everyone is invited into the gospel. And then when we see someone come into the fold, it is our duty, our responsibility, it's our joy to welcome them with open arms. But here's the thing, in the middle of all of that, in the middle of our church uh, welcoming others into our space as we welcome them into the family of Jesus Christ, there's not a single person that can repent for you. There's not a single person that can come to God for you. Do you understand when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, help me out, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's what he says. No man 
comes to the Father except through me. The access point we have to God Almighty is not your pastor. It's not your mom and dad. It's not an elder or a teacher in your life. The access point to God himself is Jesus Christ. There is no mediator between God and man except through Jesus. And so it is incumbent upon each one of us to own our own spiritual faith. I remember when I was selling cars, man, years ago. Let me do the math. What is it, 2022 right now? Good night, 20 years ago. I was selling cars. And uh, once, um, once a year, we'd have this huge outdoor sale, right? And uh, I would drive from Cottage Grove to Eugene for the sale. Uh, the cool thing is you could drive to Cottage Grove and just take one of their vehicles to Eugene, one of the vehicles we were selling. So I remember I picked up uh, like a 1999 Mazda Miata convertible. How many of you know what I'm talking about? need a can opener to get out, but once you get in, that's a fun ride. A little five-speed rotary engine. And I would get to Cottage Grove, and I'd park my 89 Ford Taurus, and I'd get in my Mazda Miata, and I would hide it when we get to the lot so no one would find it, so I'd have that car all weekend. And I'd drive that little green Mazda Miata all the way up there. I had hair back then. Don't laugh. The wind would flow through my hair. It was a fun time. You know the fun thing about borrowing a car? You just don't kind of care about the car. If you know you only have it for two or three days and it's not yours, you know, I'd remember after the sales, <clears throat> I'd go to the Taco Bell and I'd get a Diet Mountain Dew, a large one. And the first night I did that, like there's not a place to put it that would fit the large 44-ounce and then I had to shift as well. Like I didn't think any of this through. And I would just put it on the car seat right there. <laughs> I would just try to get home from Eugene without spilling that drink and drinking. And I spilled it. I'm just going to be honest. By the way, if you bought that car 20 years ago, I'm sure someone else spilled drinks too, but I did as well. There's, there's a different accountability when you are borrowing something. I can tell you right now, if I had bought that 99 Miata, I wouldn't have bought a drink. I don't know if I'd put the top down. I would have taken care of it. Because if something different happens when you borrow something and when you own something, and what I'm asking you to consider is this. With your faith, are you borrowing it? Are, are you just like going this way because it happens to be the same way God's going? Right? And you're just following God because right now it's easy. And right now it's just church on Sundays. And right now it's just, you know, helping VBS and hand out a few hot dogs this weekend. Uh, it's pretty simple right now. Uh, but there's going to come a point in your life where you're going to come to a dead end and you're going to have to choose, is this something I'm borrowing or am I owning this faith? Do I, do, I, do I follow Jesus 
Or for this turn in my life, do I just trust my own instinct? By the way, how has that worked out so far? Right? There will come a moment in your life where your family will be going through something and you're just following along because you happen to be going in the same direction. And church on Sundays work and Bible study works and everything works and all of a sudden your teenager is going to have a crisis in their life. And they're going to be wondering, what is truth? Who is God? Who am I? Everything that they're inundated left and right every single day of their life. And they're going to come a moment and you as a parent are going to have to decide, what do I say in this moment? And you're going to have to choose at that dead end. Okay, oh my. Uh-oh. Oh no. Well, well, I'll see you on the other end, God. There's going to be a moment in your career where you're going to have to make decisions where uh, whether, whether, whether uh, you value uh, integrity or not. There's going to be moments in your relationship with your spouse where everything's, everything's really simple because we, we both really like each other. <laughs> We're going through things. I was doing some premarital counseling this weekend, and the first thought that went through my head is, my goodness, they're so young. Um, and then the other thought I had is, boy, they really want to do this right. They really want to go through life together, but also following Jesus because there's going to come a moment in your spouse with you and your spouse where you're going to have to choose. Am I borrowing this thing or do I own it? Here's Simon, and Simon's faced with a conundrum. Simon has been practicing the occult, and he's been doing signs and wonders, and he's been doing all of these things on his own. And he sees the disciples, and he hears Philip preaching and saying, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection. And Philip believes. And then for a moment, everything's fine for Philip, right? Because they're going the same direction. They're speaking to the crowds. There's signs and wonders. Everything's going the same way. And then all of a sudden, he sees the Holy Spirit come upon these new believers, and then he thinks, ooh, make me. And Simon Peter comes to him in the dead end of Simon's life, and Peter says to Simon, this is your moment, you have to repent. You have to repent because there's bitterness in your heart and you're bound by iniquity. And as long as you're bound by iniquity, you will always choose to go your own way. As long as you're bound with bitterness, you will always choose to go your own way. And there's no record of Simon ever repenting. History tells us that it did not end well. So I'm asking you to consider me in that 99 Miata, just not even caring because I'm just borrowing it. And the question for us today as we gather, as we reflect on these scriptures is this. Is your faith something you're borrowing or are you ready to own it? Let me pray for you this morning. God Almighty, I believe there's a moment in every one of our lives, probably several seminal moments where we have to choose whether we own this thing, this faith. There's a, there's a crisis in our family or maybe um, a problem with our finances. And all of a sudden, giving charitably to the church this week isn't as easy as it's been for so long. And so there's, there's, a, there's a moment, there's a 
dead end decision moment where you have to decide what to do. I believe there are seminal moments like these in our relationships with our spouses, relationships with our kids, where we have to choose whether we're borrowing this faith or whether we're owning it. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would repent. Boy, we don't like talking about that word, Lord, because it, it feels guilty, it feels shameful. But Lord, I pray that every person here would see the victory in repentance. Because as soon as we repent, there's joy in front of us. There's restoration in front of us. There's life in front of us. Father, would you help us to see the victory that comes when we repent? I pray that we would stop borrowing our faith. I mean, it's fine to do for a while as kids, but there comes a moment where we have to decide, is this faith ours? And so today, I pray that that would be the prayer in this church for every follower of Jesus Christ, for everyone who's watching this right now on the live stream, for everyone who's listening to the podcast maybe later this week or the recording later this week, that they would decide that they're owning their faith. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you, and have a beautiful day.